Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is good to be back. Uh, thanks for watching the last half hour with myself and Kevin O'Sullivan. Now, uh, we are into uh, the meaty three-hour show that comes to you every day uh, during the week from Monday to Friday, 10 o'clock to one o'clock. It's your window on the world. And it's not just my world, it's your world as well, because we talk about the things that you care about. And this morning, uh, the big story is, of course, Suella Braverman saying that this country uh, is in danger of opening up its borders to let in, wait for it, 780 million refugees. Now, she was wildly mocked when she said this in Parliament. She made a speech before uh, this one she's going to make in America later on today, in which she warned that basically the guidelines now, if you follow the charters, if you follow the international laws, if you follow the Refugee Convention, if you follow the European Convention on Human Rights, basically says that anybody can come here as long as they've got a good enough reason. But the trouble is, a good enough reason only really means if you can convince a Home Office person who's going to be interviewing you, uh, who is very sympathetic to you in the first place, that you are likely to suffer from some form of persecution or some form of torture or some form of, uh, you know, just general nastiness, you can come to Britain and live here for the rest of your life. Well, I'm sorry, matey, it doesn't work like that. Britain, as we've said many times on this show, is full up. We haven't got any more room, we don't want any more dinghies, we don't want any more thousands of people taking over thousands more hotels so that they can live there for the rest of time on the British taxpayer. Seven to ten million pounds a day we're now spending on this kind of malarkey. And it is malarkey, I kid you not. And it's got nothing to do with xenophobia, it's got nothing to do with racism. I don't care where people are coming from. If they're coming here illegally, they shouldn't be coming here at all. And I've got some news for you. This is a massive global problem because I've discovered over the course of the last last few days that over in America they've got a massive problem with immigration even worse than us here because of the sheer numbers of people flooding across the Mexican border with the United States of America uh, and the Texas border uh, as well as California we're talking about basically there are people coming into Mexico from sub-Saharan Africa in order to get into the United States of America now how is that happening how are they getting from Africa into South America up into Central America and thence on to North America there is something going on here. I don't know what it is, but I aim to find out. Because what can, what can be said without fear or favour uh, is that the influences politically, uh, geophysically, uh, and also um, in all sorts of other areas of the world, in Africa, are very, shall we say, anti-Western. Western Europe is full of people coming. Look at Lampedusa in Italy. We looked at it before anybody else did, and we told you how many thousands of people were going to an island that only has a population of 6,000. It's an extraordinary state of affairs. 
I'm sorry to go on a bit, but you know, I haven't been here for a while, so I've got a lot of catching up to do. I've got a load of you I want to talk to as well, because this is the one place to do it. 0344 499 1000, the home of common sense. Leon Emerali's going to kick us off this morning. Uh, he's a former Downing Street advisor, of course. We're not just talking about that. We're going to talk about um, the idiocy of working from home, where apparently uh, you eat 800 more calories a day if you work at home and you don't do as much exercise as if we didn't know that. We're going to talk about the NHS strikes, of course, because now uh, hospital doctors uh, are still striking. And we're told maybe two million cases have now been put on hold as a result of these ridiculous strikes that have been happening. We'll also be talking about Gatwick. We'll be talking about the sick man of Europe as well, because now on average 7.8 days is how many days off you take a year because you were sick. Now, I know I've just been off for a week, but it's only the third week I've had in an entire year, and it's already nearly October, so don't give me a hard time. And I wasn't off sick either. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We've got loads to do. John Redwood's going to join us as well later on. Simon Calder, Donald McLeod from Glasgow with the latest on the ULEZ situation up there. It's all kicking off because this is the place you want to be. For the next three hours, it's the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I have missed you. I hope you've missed me as well. But thanks very much to Kevin O'Sullivan for sitting in for me, uh, who you all tell me did a fabulous job. Of course he did. Let's talk to Leon Emerali, their former government advisor, because we've got a lot to talk about here. Uh, not just the Suella Braverman story, but HS2 as well. Leon, very good uh, morning to you. Morning, Mike. Very nice to see you. Welcome to uh, the first Independent Republic show of the autumn, I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it a new season, like they do in America, because it sounds big and flash. Um, but let's kick off with this Suella Braverman speech that she's mm. going to make, because she, I, I seem to remember, you might have a better memory than me, she came out with something similar to this a while back and was roundly criticised by people who just made fun of her and said, look, at she's now ridiculous. She's now talking about a billion people coming here uh, because they can. Of course, nobody thinks that's actually going to happen. But she's right to say what she said, because the refugee rules now are simply not fit for purpose, given the world we now live in. Right. Mm. Yeah, and well, I, I agree with you on that front, Mike. I do think that, you know, the, the, the convention we we're talking about, the UN Refugee Convention, was founded and started at the end of World War II, when yeah. naturally there was a lot of displacement of people. But we have to recognise that clearly the world has moved on significantly since then, and the challenges that we face after World War II aren't there anymore. So, you know, I do think she's she's quite right to be able to challenge this and say, look, is there a better way of doing things that work for the modern world? So fair play to her for that. I mean, I, I do think that we are at risk potentially in the UK of losing our place as a global leader if we keep withdrawing from these international treaties. Maybe that's, uh, you know, the route that this government wants to go down. But I think that she obviously has this place to this, this place in the Tory party as that person on the right of the party challenging the status quo. And I think that's going to go down quite well with a lot of her colleagues in Westminster and certainly a lot of the uh, party membership as well as ordinary folks listening to this program back at home, Mike. Yeah, because I think what we now know, which, which, which obviously I've been banging on about for years, is that this is a massive crisis for the world. It's not just a crisis for Britain. Britain, in a way, can't act alone because that wouldn't really work. But, but other countries are now beginning to see the dangers which are, which are coming their way. I mean, we've now got France basically patrolling their border with Italy in a way that they haven't done for many, many years. We've got the Germans saying they're not taking any more refugees from Italy. And when you look at what's happening in Italy, in Lampedusa, for example, it's horrendous. 
Yeah, and and it's not just Europe as well, Mike. I mean, actually, the biggest um, intake of refugees is in is in Asian countries. I think uh, I think Lebanon in the Middle East is one of the highest intakes. Turkey take a lot of refugees as well. So you're right; it's a global issue. So good for Suella Braverman to be looking at this from a global perspective rather than just talking about the UK leading alone. And mm. I think that we are beginning to wake up that there is going to be a displacement of people, um, not least because of you know there are wars going on in the world. There are economic disparities going on in the world and we aren't saying that those folks shouldn't be allowed to seek a better life if they are genuinely being persecuted but i think what swella braverman is trying to do is say well hang on a minute are these people being genuinely persecuted under the current uh convention and she wants to reform that and look at it and i think we can only you know respect that and say well it's probably a good move for the government mm. to be doing yes but i mean again wanting a better life and having a better life uh, is something that an awful lot of people in this country would quite like to do but they don't have the right to do it they can't pitch up uh, down on dover's sort of beaches and say to border force would you mind taking me to a nice hotel please where i could live for probably two maybe four years being paid mm. for at the taxpayers expense it's not it's not viable it's not fair and you know the one thing that Rishi Sin I think is right in saying is that he needed to make the system fairer not just for the people um, who are trying to get here but for the people who are already here many of whom came legally many of whom spent an awful lot of money and did all the right things and, and who are now some of the most vociferous voices against illegal migration because they say well hang on a minute these people are just walking in I, I you know I, I spent five years uh, trying to get here and work here and all the rest of it yeah, absolutely. Look, my family, Mike, came here as, as immigrants uh, and, and they've worked hard. They've played by the rules. They've paid their taxes. And there's a lot of people that do come here yeah. through legal routes. And yeah. it isn't easy. You know, the, the UK is a great country to live in. And therefore, the, thresh the threshold for actually being able to live and work here is rightly high. Yeah. Um, but what we can't have is, as you say, this illegal immigration. It's in the name. It's illegal. Yeah. It shouldn't be happening. Yeah. And I think that the government should be cracking down on these gangs that are, you know, committing atrocities when it comes to human mm. rights. They're just taking money, putting these, you know, sometimes they are desperate people in, in, in precarious situations. People do die in those yeah. crossings. And I think they need to be clamping down on those gangs. And once they do that, we'll start to see yeah. those numbers drop off. But also off, the I'm reason, sure surely the reason an awful lot of those people take the risk that they decide to take by trying to get here is because they know if they do get here, the reward is, wor is worth the risk. You know, if you took away the reward, perhaps the risk would be too much for them and then they wouldn't do it. Yeah, I think, and, and you know, that's the issue here is that when they see what happens if family members or friends have made that that crossing and actually it worked out okay for them, they think, okay, well, it's worth, it is worth that risk. It's worth paying the money and it's worth risking my life. But that isn't that shouldn't be the case. And I'm you know I'm not sure what the answer is. Yeah. I'm not sure if Rwanda necessarily is the right answer to it. But I think Suella Braverman is taking the right move in actually trying to rally the global community behind this because it isn't just the UK can't act unilaterally we do need to have no. cooperation with the likes of france others in europe others in well, asia and thing. africa and maybe yeah maybe even africa because i was uh, being told just the other day that they've got a massive problem obviously with immigration illegal immigration in the united states people coming across the border but there are people coming across the border from mexico now into the u.s mm -hmm. from sub-saharan africa so they're obviously getting it's themselves, crazy. they're getting themselves from africa to south america working their way up through um, brazil getting into central america and getting into mexico and suddenly um you kind of got you got to ask the question how are they getting that far across the across the the, the, the oceans
It's not easy. I mean, that is not an easy trip to make. It's no. thousands and thousands of miles in pretty precarious conditions, I would imagine. I mean, the so channel, you do have to the, ask. The, yeah, I mean, the English Channel is one thing, but if you start going anywhere near the Cape of Good Hope and all the rest of it, you know, it's a bit of a different kettle of fish. Very much so. And I think, you know, that just talks to the level of organisation that these gangs have yeah. when it comes to human trafficking, ultimately. You yeah. know, you can't just do that on a whim. You have to plan that meticulously, yeah. which they've clearly done. This is a, you know, a criminal enterprise that, that we look at with, uh, with international, uh, movement of people, illegal in movement of people. So, you know, there has to be a crackdown on those gangs. There yeah. has to be a lack of incentives to come here. And once they do get here illegally, What's the repercussions of that? What's the what, what's the redress? Because you can't just say, "All right, you've made it here, so you know, good on you. Welcome to to America. Welcome to the UK." Yeah. That can't be the case because it just opens the door to more. Yeah, absolutely right, Leon. Stay where you are because we're going to talk about HS2. I need your val valuable experience inside of Downing Street to find out what on earth has gone wrong with that, uh, which could be a long conversation. Also, the NHS as well. And what about this? Workers taking an average of 7.8 days off with illness in the past year alone. That's a whole week of productivity just gone, out the window, kerflui, never to be seen again. Is any wonder that nothing's working, including, by the way, Gatwick Airport. We'll talk about that later on with Simon Calder because they're shutting down um, some ludicrous number of flights because there's too many people off sick at air traffic control. I mean, give me a small break, will you? This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We're going to say uh, something about uh, the HS2 debacle. I know it was a story that was around yesterday, the front page of the Times today. Uh, it says Rishi Sunak's alarmed by the runaway cost of HS2, uh, saying that executives on the project have been acting like kids with the golden credit card. Well, he probably knows all about that because he probably had one. Um, but we'll come back to that in a minute. We're talking to Leon Emirali, former government advisor. And of course, it's conference season, Leon. So I'm going to ask you about this in a minute, uh, what conference season is like for politicians and particularly for the government. For the Lib Dems, uh, it seems to be yet another uh, opportunity for them to show uh, how ridiculous they are. Have a look at this. This is Ed Davey uh, in a canoe. And for some reason, one of the guys who's with him, I think that's one of his um, chief of staff or somebody, tips them up out of the canoe. They then proceed to behave like sort of toddlers, throwing water over each other, wearing life jackets in what looks like about a foot of water. And you're kind of going, that's the only thing I now know has happened at the Lib Dem conference because I don't care about anything they're actually talking about. But they do look a bit daft, don't they? Leon? Yeah, they look really, they look really daft. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what the th the thought process there is that they're trying to uh, to achieve with that. I mean, it's not a good look. I remember when was it Neil Kinnock back in the day at the Labour conference when he when he fell into the into the river in, into the into, into the, the sea. sea yeah. Uh, and it's just you just sort of think the metaphors that you can get from that are, are not good. I don't right. know what what the what the thinking process is behind it, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, conference season is one of those where if you're an opposition party like the Lib Dems, you're trying to make a bit of a, a bit of a name for yourself. Yeah. But is this the right name for yourself? And people looking at that thinking that's the man that I want to vote for. That's the man that I want to give power I mean, to. In I some, and in some ways, it might. I mean, I'm not expecting the Lib Dems to do particularly well at the next election. I could be wrong about that, but you know, in some some cases you might say this is the last conference before the election mm. and if there were an opportunity for the Lib Dems to you know go into some kind of coalition loose or otherwise with with Labour if that was the case or with the Tories you want to know that they represent a little bit more than standing in sort of ankle deep water wearing life jackets and throwing water over each other. Yeah, well, you're quite right. I mean, if, if you ask someone on the street, what's the what's your takeaway from Lib Dem conference? Yeah, and they would it. say, 
Ed Davey looking like a prat on the beach, and uh, I don't think that's a vote winner. So, no. you know, what policies have they announced? What are they? What's their plan and their big vision for the country? No one knows. They no. just see they just see them frolicking around. So, yeah, it's a bit of a strange one. I'm sure we probably won't see that from more seasoned politicians at the Labour and the um, the Conservative conference. I doubt that we'll, well see. Well, this Rishi is. A, or, I mean, this or, is a big, important uh, conference for Labour, isn't it? I mean, they've really got to make their mark, and Starmer has got to look like a prime minister. When he makes his speech, he's going to, they're going to have to do something to him. They're going to have to give him some pizzazz or something like that. Yeah, they are. And, and this is the, the sort of try before you buy moment, really, for voters to see him in that in that role. Is he a guy that you could trust with the keys to number 10? And I think that Labour are going into this conference season, season feeling a lot more optimistic than they have done in previous years. I mean, I remember the, the Corbyn years conference had the sort of feeling of a funeral yes. because it was just horrific and they knew they were in for a drubbing. Whereas, you know, it looks as though Labour are on course for a pretty good set of election results. Yeah. So um, I think I think Starmer has to not put his foot in it basically that's going to be his his key objective is to is to not make a fool of himself and uh, and hope that that carries him through and they can retain their lead think, in the poll i think the other danger for starmer as well is the sort of the rogue element of the labor party the people who uh, are, mm. are in and around not necessarily the house of houses of parliament but you know councillors some uh, activists you know there's a lot of what I would regard as if i was keir starmer quite dangerous people out there with some quite dangerous opinions yeah, I mean, his his job coming in after Corbyn was to try and effectively expel all of those that hold um, loony left uh, views. And he's done quite a good job of, of removing that from the sort of central inner in a sanctum of the party but actually as you say those members still exist mike and those councillors are still there so if we start hearing vox pops of people at labor conference and they're coming out with you know crazy suggestions that perhaps are, are more like jeremy corbyn than they are keir starmer mm. then it might make voters think okay well those guys are still in and around the party are they have they really changed Are labor right. really a party that can be trusted absolutely right let's just talk about uh, hs2 for a moment mm. because the story in the times today has got the prime minister basically uh, pulling the plug on uh, the bit from Birmingham to Manchester based upon the runaway cost of the project. I mean, it's a bit like a bloke waking up in the morning and going, I didn't realise it was going to be light. I mean, HS2 has been over budget ever since the day they mentioned HS2. Um, yeah. But I'm also told that it's not possible for the HS2 project to spend any money unless it's signed off by ministers in the first place. So is he being a bit, shall we say, economical with the truth here? Possibly. And, you know, HS2 is one of those projects that, as you say, has just been controversial since the day it started. Yeah. And actually, when you look at it, the technology that we're now using on HS2 is so outdated uh, that it's almost not worth doing. So um, I, I do think there is a bit of a bit of a, an issue with HS2 more broadly, mm. albeit I do think that the investment is probably quite good for the economy, but perhaps it's too good. And that's what Rishi Sunak's getting at, is that these contractors are just paying themselves huge salaries because they've got this HS2 bounce in their in their in their uh, bottom line and all the other sort of expenses that go alongside a huge infrastructure project like that. And I think Sunak's thinking, look, at a time when the economy isn't necessarily firing on all cylinders, do we need to draw things in a bit? Do we need to be a bit more frugal with, with the money that we spend? And I think that's what's what's going to be driving his motivation to potentially scrap it. Obviously, a lot of folks in the north where the the, uh, the leg is going to be scrapped are up in arms. Yeah. Andy, Berman, uh, Andy Burnham is, uh, is furious about it. And I get that, you know, that they obviously want to have their region connected to the rest of the country but i guess sunak's job is to look at it as a bigger picture what is it like for the country as a whole not just any particular region that that benefits directly from hs2 but i mean the other problem i suppose for for anyone wanting to scrap something which is quite well advanced is that they've bought 
have they not? Loads of tracts mm. of land. They've compulsorily purchased people's houses. I know certainly between um, London and Birmingham, there's massive amounts of, of construction that have, that have been done. I don't know how much has been done beyond Birmingham. But, you know, they, they've been working on this for a long time. And, and so there's quite a lot of stuff to suddenly just abandon if they're going to just go, right, well, that's, that's, it stops here. That's the end. Yeah, and, and you have to look at that. You have to say, is it worth it? If we say, make these X number of billion savings by scrapping it entirely, mm. well, how much have we spent getting to this right. point? And it's it's on things like, not like consultants, like planners, you know, the, the, these things that all goes on behind the scenes before a shovel's even hit the ground right. uh, that costs a hell of a lot of money still. So that money is just going to go down the drain if it is scrapped, and we have to just write it off, which I think would be a bit of a shame. Um, but these big infrastructure projects are not bad for the country because they do create jobs and they do create growth when that these huge big projects like HS2 would be. Um, but it's whether or not Rishi Sunak thinks he's getting value for money. And I think this goes to the heart of one of the biggest problems in government is that they take a blank checkbook approach where they say, right, we're building this thing, just get it done because the ministers don't want the bad headlines. So they just say, yeah, spend, spend, spend. When I think we should be a lot more prudent, we should be able to actually have, say, is this value for money? And if it isn't, then you have to look elsewhere and maybe look at another contractor to carry out the job. There's enough of them out there. Absolutely. And meanwhile, for Rishi Sunak, actually, he hasn't had a terrible week because according to uh, one of the polls that's been done recently, he's had a bit of an eight point surge because he's delayed the ban on petrol cars uh, from 2030 to 2035. I think that's a much more popular policy than, than the net zero brigade would like to think. I think I think so. I mean, a lot of people when they heard that news were thinking, I can't afford an electric car uh, you know, in, in what is effectively around the corner. Um, and they're not cheap, these electric cars. Now, obviously, the hope is that by 2030, they would have been a bit, uh, would have, cost would have come down a bit, but there's no guarantee of that. So right. people are already feeling as if they've got that weight off of their mind, feeling as like, okay, I don't have to fork out on an electric car in 2030 if I need to buy a new one then. So I think people are, are probably looking at this and feeling quite quite uh, reassured by that. And yes, if there is a big uh, big bump in the polls for Sunak, you might be thinking, well, what else can I do in the net zero right. space to, to, to make things a bit easier for people? Because clearly that could be a wedge issue between him as the Conservatives and Labour Party. Yeah, well, if he manages to give some people some tax back, you know, he could be onto a winner because I'm still not convinced by Keir Starmer. And I think a lot of people are not convinced by Keir Starmer that he's definitely going to be the answer and that he would suddenly improve the lot of this country. No, I don't. And I think you know, Keir Starmer is one of those politicians who is uh, ahead in the polls, quite frankly, because the Tories have made a mess of it over the past couple of years. It's not because they love the Labour Party or they love Keir Starmer. He's just been uh, a, ben a beneficiary of, of the Tories' misfortune. So I think when it actually comes to a head-to-head, -head, when they're both up on the podium on a debate or when it's a, a, a clear shootout between which of these two men do you want to become Prime Minister, I think actually Sunak becomes more appealing and he is more popular, the Rishi Sunak brand is more popular than the Conservative Party brand. So, you know, there is still hope, I think. And I don't think it's going to be a whitewash in the elections that people are saying it's going to be. I think it's going to be a lot tighter uh, than the polls currently suggest. And, and I think that will probably be down to Keir Starmer just being a bit of a, a cardboard politician. What is there to the guy? Yeah, absolutely right. Leon, good to see you. Thanks for talking to us. Leon Emirali, former government advisor there on the vagaries of being prime minister. Uh, this week is actually not that bad for Rishi Sunak. Probably an improvement uh, on previous weeks because he finally did something that we've been asking him to do, that we've been calling for, uh, that we've been recommending that he do. And he suddenly does it. And guess what? He gets an eight point surge in the polls. Well, guess 
why you should be listening to the Independent Republican Mike Graham and doing what we suggest, because our viewers and our listeners are far more sensible than anybody sitting around a cabinet table. I can tell you that for starters. Uh, how about this from uh, Mitch? When Mike, when the UN Refugee Convention was agreed in 1951, the population of the world was around 2.5 billion. Today, it stands at around eight. Absolutely. Um, and Trish says, my feeling is that the mass immigration is being superbly organised to destabilise the Western nations and create mass disturbance with populations. Well, you could easily be convinced of that. You know, if it's right that people are coming from all over Africa into America via South America, coming across the oceans in boats of some size. And when you look at what's happening, coming from Libya, coming from places like um, North Africa, into Lampedusa, into Italy, by the tens of thousands on a weekly basis. You have to wonder, how's this being organised? Who's doing it all? Is it just the migrant gangs? Is it just people traffickers? Or is there more to it? We're going to talk to Jonathan Gullis, MP, coming next. On DAB+, on the app, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. And we are back and we are back with a bang because, ladies and gentlemen, there's an awful lot to talk about this morning. Uh, we're going to talk more about HS2. We're also going to talk about Sick Note Britain. Do you know that now 7.8 days is the average time taken off by people who work in this country uh, because they're too ill? to go to work. That's a massive increase in what we used to have, uh, which was probably less than three or four days. Now, loads of people take time off and much of it, they say, has to do with mental health. Um, we'll be talking more about that coming up in a little while. But let's say a very good morning, though, to Jonathan Gullis, Conservative MP for Stoke-on-Trent North, of course, because uh, he is a man uh, who speaks an awful lot of sense. And there's not a lot of that going on, as you well know. Jonathan, very good morning to you. Welcome. Well, hello, Mike, and you're entirely right. I think all civil servants should have to tune in to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, so a dose of common sense to uh, get rid of the Channel 4 that's been ringing in their ears the night before. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, I've got some bad news for them all as well, because working from home apparently makes you munch through an extra 800 calories a day, according to uh, a survey I've got here. 3,500 fewer steps on average when you work from home and don't actually bother going to an office. So, you know, the, the revolution is over as far as I'm concerned for that. But let's talk about uh, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary. Uh, she's going to be saying later on today in America that there are as many as 780 million people who could qualify to claim asylum in the UK. I think she's absolutely right. She said this similar uh, sort of number a while ago and people were sort of roundly critical of her and, and, and were almost ridiculing her for saying, oh, of course a billion people aren't going to come to Britain. Well, I can tell you, Jonathan, I've been saying it this this morning. There are people coming into Mexico now from sub-Saharan Africa and they're flooding into the United States of America because they can. And there's a very big problem here for, for the West, it seems to me. Western Europe, one, but also the US and A. Uh, because if the US is getting people coming from Africa, um, it's obviously being very well organised, isn't it? Well, first of all, isn't it great to have a politician, a frontline politician as well, who's got the bravery of their convictions and their beliefs to stand up and say what they think. The British public are crying out for this. And unlike Sakir Starmer, who constantly dodges and ducks and dives at every opportunity, and then seemingly seems to say that the Times newspaper were not telling the truth when he was actually clearly signing up to an EU quota sharing scheme. It's great that Suella uh, has the belief, and I hope every colleague, because you know, sadly, Mike, uh, there's always a few wets in the Tory party yeah. sometimes. Need to, I'm sure we'll brief, and uh, you know, without their name being used to the Guardian. But I hope that every colleague and the Prime Minister will rally behind what Suella's got to say because she's bang on the money. You know, this asylum shopping, and it is asylum shopping, there's no other word for it, is taking place. It's completely unacceptable. It goes against the idea of claiming asylum. 
you know, Baroness Scotland, the former Labour minister, used to say that you should claim asylum in the first safe country that you get to. We've got the Prime Minister making it clear that you do not need to leave mainland France in order to come to this country because you're already in a UN founding uh, NATO signatory uh, country. So why on earth do you need to flee from France at the end of the day? And as you say, it's very concerning to see mass migration all across the continent now taking place. And I just hope that the British public uh, feel the difference as and when I believe that we'll win that court case with Rwanda and we uh, on Rwanda and we can get those planes off the ground and over there to send a real signal to the smuggling gangs. But you are right, it does. It can easily let people feel there is something wider going on here when it's coming on those numbers that we're seeing very worrying indeed. Yeah, exactly right. And a caller to Julie Hartley Bruce said this morning made a good point. He said, you know, it's all very well saying these people are coming here illegally, but we are actually helping them to do so because inevitably, you know, border forces picking them up in the sea uh, or the RNLI is picking them up in the sea. They're bringing them to this country. Many of them are not actually, you know, just touching the, the shores and then they're here. Many of them are, are sort of being picked up in British waters and sometimes in French waters before they've, they've actually got here. And then once they are here, they're sort of, you know, know, fed and watered and given somewhere to stay, sometimes for years on end. So, you know, I, I, I'm not being critical of the government doing that, but it is an interesting argument. Well, look, what we're seeing is a big difference, aren't we, in Belgium and in France. In Belgium, they're actually being proactive and making sure that boats are not being uh, deployed from their shores, but also being taken back to Belgium soil. So we've seen a, a dramatic drop in the amount of attempts for people to cross the channel from Belgium. But in France... Monsieur Macron is more interested in having cosy photos with Sir Keir Starmer than he is in actually trying to stop the boats. Yeah. And ultimately, he's happy to profiteer off the great British taxpayer rather than actually deliver on the promises that he supposedly has made to us. I just think that the France has got so much to do. And like you say, the fact that when that boat was sinking deep in French territorial waters, it was the British who went and rescued those, whilst the French idly stood by and watch that happen. That is completely unacceptable. And the fact that the international community haven't condemned France, but condemned the United Kingdom for wanting to look at Rwanda, tells you everything you need to know about the virtue signaling wokerati that sadly infected global institutions and NGOs around the world today. You know, I just think it's uh, telling us that ultimately, as you say, we need to make sure that we send it clear. If we're picking people up, we should be taking them back to France. If the French don't like that, and they want to get into some sort of standoff, then we should have that standoff. We shouldn't be afraid to make a very clear signal of intent to the French authorities. We've given you nearly three quarters of a billion pounds over the last five to eight, year, five to eight years to stop boats or in some cases stop the lorries. We've put infrastructure that's used taxpayer money on your side of the border. We are the ones patrolling the waters. You are simply just standing by and parting, as the Express pointed out, uh, on the on the British taxpayer diamond and happily helping, it looks like, in some cases, mm. small boats launch, and we simply won't take it anymore. No, and it's interesting, isn't it, that the French are actually beginning to wake up to their own problem as well, because they're now patrolling the, 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 the southern border with Italy far closer than they've ever done, because it yeah. used to be there was no border there at all. Because looking at all the people coming to Lampedusa, that island off the coast of Sicily in Italy, is the first, sort of first port of call for thousands and thousands of people. I think they had 8,000 people practically in one day. Um, and there's only 6,000 people living there. They're now stopping people coming in from Italy. The Germans have also said to Italy that they're not going to take any more refugees from that country. So the, the, the EU and, and Europe is sort of waking up to this problem as well. 
About time too. I mean, what's happening in Lampedusa is absolutely petrifying, to be perfectly frank, for not just that population where obviously they're now dramatically outnumbered, but also for the fact that this clearly shows the driven intent for people, predominantly young men, as we've seen from all the video footage, uh, with their iPhones, with their Nike trainers, uh, you know, these people who are supposedly fleeing for their lives, Mike, you know, this tells us everything we need to know, Mm. which is why I think the Home Secretary has been so bang on with her language. And despite being derided by the Labour Party, who simply want an open border policy with the EU and who actually want to move our borders from the channel over to the Mediterranean based on the EU quota sharing scheme they want to sign us up to, tells us all we need to know that in this country, whilst I accept that not everyone will be in love with the Conservative Party at this moment in time, they want to see more delivery and less talk. I fully understand that. The alternative is a Labour Party propped up by a Liberal Democrat Party who are desperate to rejoin the European Union, who simply will sell out the British public Uh, and obviously have amnesty through the back door in all but name in order to effectively allow the smugglers to carry on doing what they're doing, which is making the UK a destination of choice, as if it's some sort of holiday idea where people have a right to choose. No, Christian Wokeford, uh, who used to be a Conservative, obviously a bit of a twerp in joining the Labour (laughs) Party, used the actual, said this was asylum shopping. I wonder if he still agrees with that view now, or has he somehow been on some sort of journey that the left-wingers love to tell us about so much? Yeah, and they really do, don't they? Because we've obtained some exclusive footage, Jonathan, actually, of some of those people uh, in the Labour Party who want to rejoin uh, the European Union. Have a look at this. I mean, there are no words, really. Are there, Jonathan? Well, no, look, I will say one thing. The synchronisation was quite impressive. I mean, it's quite tragic that people have spent that much time uh, practising, clearly, and rehearsing. And I'm sure that if they were on Strictly Come Dancing, you'd have to give them some points for that. But in terms of actual, you know, interest and uh, the costume choice of cho- uh, as well would mean that I'd only give it a one, yeah. uh, personally. I'm sure Sakir Starmer will give it a ten. Because yeah. these are his buddies. His well, Russell-loving buddies. You yeah, know, but I mean, poor old, poor old Keir Starmer, he goes over to Europe, right, like some kind of, you know, Tony Blair Muppet, uh, decides that he's going to try and impress everybody with his incredible international acumen, gets to The Hague, nobody knows why he's there, then does a deal uh, supposedly with uh, Emmanuel Macron, um, who, then, who then finds out he can't do that deal because he's not in the EU. Um, so he comes back and immediately the only policy he's actually decided to make on migrants turns out to be something he can't do. Well, it tells you everything you need to know, doesn't it, Pike, about the Labour Party, that the first time they've actually put some detail on the table, it instantly falls apart. Uh, and ultimately, these are the people that want to govern our country. I mean, yeah. whilst I, again, whilst I say that the Conservative Party have got a lot to do to repair trust with the British public, I'm not blind to that. I'm not saying everything's perfect. We've got to deliver in order to get people to want to vote for us. But the, the alternative is absolutely mm. dire and dismal. And I'm sure the British public overall are feeling quite uh, apathetic at this moment in time. And whilst I believe that the Prime Minister, as you said earlier, is making the right steps on net zero, you know, about time common sense prevailed in this debate. He obviously is going to talk tough about wanting to go further in other areas that we've heard. I think HS2, you know, look, ultimately, this is something that technically would benefit Stoke-on-Trent with part of the Hansacre link. But uh, I do think for many people that I serve, they are looking at this project and the amount of billions that it's going to be projected. And they do think to themselves, 
if that money went on bus services, if that money went to improving the roads and fixing potholes, that would be a big win overall. And so I think that, you know, if the government is looking to spend money in a different way, then let's do it. Yeah, I mean, to me, the Tory party is still in a position where it's all is not lost. A bit like, you know, the Champions League final in 2005. You know, Liverpool uh, were losing, getting beaten dramatically, uh, but came back and actually won it. Because we've seen an eight-point um, bump in the polls for Rishi Sunak after he uh, gave up on that ludicrous net zero idea of uh, cars being done away with if they've got petrol in them by 2030. So, I mean, there's, there's any number of things that he could do to get another eight points and then another eight points. Well, like you say, a flight to Rwanda, I'm sure, will have a surge in the polls. And then Labour will actually have to say, are they still committed to cancelling that policy once the plane gets off the ground? Because ultimately, their, their cover at the moment is to say that, oh, no, no plane's taken off, so this deal doesn't actually work. When we see a flight take off, they'll have to answer that question. We need to do more deals with more safe third countries to get more people out of this country who've arrived here illegally. I think on crime, we need to make sure that neighbourhood policing is actually taking place and hold chief constables and police and crime commissioners to account. And if they're not delivering, then call them out for doing so. We need to make sure, as I say, that if we're not going to continue the whole leg of HS2 to Manchester, that is that money going into improving bus services and fixing potholes, which Mm. drive people pottery here in the potteries, Mike, you won't be shocked to know. Uh, And then ultimately, we also need to make sure that you know, we have those very clear dividing lines. And I still believe that you leaving the European Convention of Human Rights is one of those that we should be signing up to because it's ridiculous how it's delayed us deporting terrorists to other countries like America, for example, to be uh, investigated for serious crimes. It's obviously being used by these human rights lawyers to prevent us from putting people onto barges or uh, deporting them uh, once they've arrived here illegally. It simply doesn't work in the interest of the United Kingdom. We already have the Human Rights Act. We already have the Equality Act. We have thousands of pieces of case law. We have a Supreme Court that keeps checks and balances on the government. Why on earth do we need a court in Strasbourg as well? to tell us what to do. Yeah, absolutely right. Jonathan, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Jonathan Gullisek, Conservative MP uh, for Stoke-on-Trent North, talking a great deal of common sense, as he often does, uh, as we hear here an awful lot uh, on the Independent Republican microphone. Coming up next, we're going to hear from you as well. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number to call, because at the end of the day, uh, common sense will win. Trust me. And it's not in any way, shape or form a done deal, as far as I'm concerned. And I'm talking about the next election. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are with you all the way through until one o'clock. It's uh, the first hour uh, done and dusted. We've been talking an awful lot about Suella Braverman and her speech later on, uh, which is about to say uh, that 780 million people could technically apply and get asylum in this country uh, because of the ridiculous rules that exist under the UN Convention of Human Rights and the Refugee uh, Acts that have been passed in various ways, shapes and forms since 1951. It's all outdated, it's all outmoded and it needs to change. And I think she's absolutely right to say every single bit of that. Coming up in this house, Sir John Redwood joins us, Conservative MP, of course, for Wokingham. Uh, He's got plenty to say uh, about that, I'm sure. Plus, he wants to talk about the Bank of England, uh, which has apparently lost so much money uh, that taxpayers are going to be asked to fork out something like £24 billion uh, because they sold bonds at a lower price than they were bought. 
absolutely extraordinary. The amount of money that it would cost us in the future could be as high as £100 billion. Absolutely ridiculous. We'll also talk about Rishi Sunak. Uh, he's come up in the polls a little bit since I've been away, not least because of the net zero ban. Do you remember just last week he changed his view? Uh, he's put off uh, from 2030 to 2035 uh, the phasing out of petrol and diesel cars, therefore giving himself and the Tory party quite a bit of a boost. And I said to Jonathan Gullis a little bit earlier on uh, in this show uh, that the game is not over yet. There is absolutely no certainty whatsoever that you're going to get Sir Keir Starmer in as the next Prime Minister inside Downing Street because I think there's an awful lot of people who are still not at all convinced about what it is that he's talking about. We also want to talk a bit about this sick note Britain. 7.8 days is now the number of days that people take off work due to illness in this country, which is really, really high as far as I'm concerned because that is on top, of course, of all the holidays that they get, on top of all the working from home, on top of everything else uh, that is making this country less efficient than it perhaps ought to be. Let's say a very good morning to Sir John Redwood. Uh, Sir John, nice to see you. Thank you for joining us. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed. Um, we can, if, 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 if we may, kick off with uh, Suella Braverman. She's off to the States uh, today to make a speech in which she's going to say that the uh, outmoded sort of refugee acts and various different United Nations conventions need to be changed, need to be updated in order to reflect the way that the world now is. I think she's right about that, isn't she? Yeah, she's absolutely right. Um, we want to be a generous country and make our contribution for those who are in genuine distress and, and fleeing violence and bad treatment. But they've got to come by legal routes. Um, the Home Secretary is battling away to try and stop the criminal gangs and all the illegal arrivals because it's putting far too much pressure on our hotels and our future housing budgets. Uh, but she's also right uh, that we can't take millions of economic migrants from all around the world and, and the treaties are a bit loose on these matters. Yes, I think so. And it's obvious, isn't it, that an awful lot of the problems that we're facing is because of a huge surge in the numbers of people moving around the world. I've been saying um, in the first hour of the show that I've been talking to five friends of mine in the States, and there are people now moving through Mexico into the United States of America from sub-Saharan Africa and all sorts of points sort of uh, east, west and north of that. So there's obviously something going on. Mass numbers of people by the millions literally leaving places like Africa and the Indian subcontinent and trying to gain entry to either the United States or Western Europe. Well, that is the danger. And, and it's, it's sort of doubly bad uh, for both the country receiving all these people because it, it's very difficult to provide the housing, the school places, the hospital assistance and all the other things people need to live to good standard. Uh, but it's even worse in the country they're leaving because it's very often the most energetic and talented people that decide to become illegal economic migrants. Uh, and that is denuding their countries of the, the talent and the energy that they need uh, to rebuild and, and to grow their living standards. So we need to assist them and help them in their home country. But we need very clear laws against illegal want to be economic migrants coming in. Yes. And I'm no fan of the low wage model of giving lots of permits for people to come here to undercut our jobs market. I don't think that works very well either. No, it really doesn't. And the problem, of course, for, for many people in this country is that when it was a smaller number coming, they were willing to sort of put up with 
that being um, a, a situation they might not have absolutely wanted to encourage. But now it's a massive problem. Uh, it's affecting people's lives on a daily basis. We're seeing, you know, more and more people coming because they know that if they can just get here, there's a pretty good chance they won't ever have to leave. And even the legal migration numbers have gone through the roof as well. Yes, indeed, they have. And I think that's something the government can do more work on immediately, because by definition, these are people coming legally and it's something we can control. Uh, and I think too often we just take what appears to be the easy way out for the employer and say, well, why don't we get a lot of people in who will work hard and, and won't demand a pay rise? But of course, that's a huge burden on the state because they need subsidised housing and they need all sorts of public services. And indeed, they need utilities. And, and we're now finding ourselves very short of electricity, very short of decent school places, particularly short of health capacity. Uh, and if you invite five or six hundred thousand extra people in every year and they qualify for that, no wonder you're short of the capacity. Yeah. Although, you know, every time I turn around, there seems to be another crisis somewhere. We're hearing this morning that there could be two million operations and procedures in the NHS that have been postponed or cancelled due to the strikes that are still going on. We've got Gatwick Airport today having problems because too many people are off sick, apparently, at the air traffic control. You know, uh, we've also got this uh, study that says that 7.8 <coughs> days a week, uh, the, the days a year, is now what people take off sick. There's a sort of malaise going on, isn't there? Well, there's a very big productivity problem because we, we've had a, a big fall in productivity in crucial state services and the civil service uh, over the COVID period. And it's urgent that we get back to the productivity levels we had before COVID. Mm. That would seem to be a pretty modest aim. Uh, now, I, I'm very sympathetic to people who are really ill and they need time off work. And I'm glad we live in a system where they get time off work and, and pay is uh, reflecting their need. Uh, but what we can't have is a society in which um, some people decide to get ill on a Friday or a Monday because they want a long weekend. Mm. Well, exactly right. And we know, as I'm sure you've noticed, that, you know, Mondays and Fridays, certainly in the centre of London, much quieter because people don't bother coming to work. You know, Thursday night is the new night out. You should see the state of the pubs around London Bridge on a Thursday night. It's what Friday used to look like, but now Friday's quieter. Yes, indeed. And the main trend behind that, of course, is home working mm. rather than people pretending to be ill yeah um, but uh, same kind of combined same kind of problem is definitely view. that and then of course it kills other people's jobs right. it's quite difficult to sustain a, a restaurant or a cafe or a bar or whatever on three days a week um, you really do need the five day a week trade yeah absolutely right i suppose one place uh, where you might wish that people didn't go to work as much as they do uh... millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 
to the Bank of England. Um, you've become uh, aware of a story which is extraordinary to me. And thank goodness you've highlighted it because um, I didn't know about this. This is all dating back to 2008 when the bank decided to buy a bunch of bonds, right? And they've sold them at a lower price than they were bought at, costing us a, a fortune. Yes, well, I mean, the immediate problem is all the bonds they bought in 2021, right. well into recovery after COVID. Uh, I could understand why they printed a lot of money and, and made money very cheap in 2020, because if you decide, as the government did, to close down a big chunk of the economy, um, incomes collapse, people are not allowed to go to work or run their businesses, uh, so you can see the need for an offset. But the Bank of England kept on printing money and making sure that interest rates were very, very low throughout 2021 when there was a recovery underway. That, I think, was bound to be inflationary. Some of us were saying that at the time. And surprise, surprise, it was. So what they're now doing is they're going too far the other way and all those bonds they bought in 2021 at sky-high prices, they're now selling off at the rock-bottom prices there is now in the market, seeming to want to increase the losses more. Whereas if they did what the European Central Bank is doing, which made very similar mistakes on the way up to the Bank of England, they're just saying, we're waiting for the bonds to mature. The governments have to repay them at specified dates, and you minimise the losses doing that compared with wading into the market and selling them at very low prices. And who's making this decision? I mean, why are they doing it earlier rather than later? What's forcing them to do that? Well, the Bank of England is making the decision, and I read their published statements as anybody can, and they don't make any sense to me. I mean, they both say that it doesn't really make very much impact on life that they sell these things, but nonetheless, it's a good idea to sell them, which seems contradictory. But I don't believe the, the, these sales have no impact. They have two very clear impacts. One is that the Treasury, in other words, the British taxpayers, have to send the Bank of England all the money for the losses they make when they mm. sell the bonds. That was the original deal signed off by every chancellor from Alistair Darling onwards. Uh, but the, I mean, the other problem is that it, it, it means that you are driving the interest rates even higher for the longer dated mortgages because they, they read off the interest rates on the bonds. And if the price of the bond goes down, the interest rate goes up. So that is what the Bank of England is doing. Yeah. They haven't got much right lately, have they? I mean, they've been spending an awful lot of time getting gender-neutral toilets put in, making sure that people have got plenty of diversity training, but actually running and stewarding the economy doesn't seem to be something they're very good at. No, it's extremely sad. And they themselves have admitted, I'm pleased to see recently, that their models and their forecasts were very wrong on inflation, which is why I think they carried on printing money for far too long and boosting the inflation further, because they didn't see the inflation coming. And they promised us that they're going to revise all that, but they're taking a very long time about it. I think it's urgent now. Um, they are meeting regularly to make decisions about what happens to our mortgages and what happens to our economic growth. But they themselves don't have confidence in their inflation forecasts. So I'm not quite sure how you make their decisions until you've got inflation forecasts that you think are robust. Yes, exactly right. And we, I mentioned earlier that uh, Rishi Sunak got a bit of a bump in the polls because of uh, his reversal on the net zero decision, which I think was also a good idea. There's lots of other things he could do to get himself you know, further uh, popular uh, in the stakes of, uh, of the polls. Much of it you, I know, um, uh, profess to agree with us on, that you know, he should be more conservative. There are things that he could do between now and the next election. I don't think it's by any means a, a done deal for Sakir Starmer at all. Well, no, of course not. And the people aren't in love with Starmer. And, and very often Keir Starmer decides to 
accentuate and make more extreme policies this government following that aren't very popular, which is a very odd way to try and win an election. Yeah, Um, yeah, I think there are some very positive conservative ideas uh, that are popular. uh, And we've seen that a modest set of tweaks uh, to the net zero policies to put people into the frame and recognize that people can't afford to make the changes or they're not ready to make some of the changes yet is very sensible. Uh, As you know, I've been desperately campaigning to get some tax relief so that we can grow the economy a bit faster. Uh, I think self-employed taxation is very off-putting and we've lost a lot of self-employed people. We need more of them back. Uh, I think the small businesses often get to 85,000 to turnover and they stop there and they stop trading for a bit because they don't want to go through the VAT threshold. It'd be very easy change to increase the VAT threshold. You get an immediate boost of extra activity from people who were prepared to do a bit more work uh, because they're not falling foul of the tax system. And I think we still need to do something on energy taxation. Our energy prices are very uncompetitive in this country, and we don't want to end up closing our industry down because the energy is too dear to import the industrial products from elsewhere. That won't save the planet. That will actually increase world CO2 and undermine our jobs and our recovery. Indeed. Um, And unless you're feeling... um particularly um, tired this afternoon. You can watch Ed Davies' speech, and I'm sure that will put you to sleep forthwith. I think I've got more productive uses of my time this afternoon. (laughs) I know that Ed Davies only seems to have one theme, which is that they don't like Conservatives and they want to take Conservative seats. Uh, I think you need to engage the public on a much more popular and sensible Mm. offer about what you're going to provide for the public rather than all this self-interest about how they want some MP jobs. Yes, absolutely right. So, John, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. So, John Redwood there, Conservative MP from Wokey. And like the rest of us, have got much better things to do than watch Sir Ed Davies' speech this afternoon at Lib Dem conference. Uh, this is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are back. We haven't been here, but we are here now. Uh, Don in Chelmsford says, Mike, in the public sector, you can go sick on full pay for six months. When I worked in local government, most people off with stress, in inverted commas, uh, got better just as the six months was running out. Yes, it's funny that. Uh, it's like the old Henny Youngman joke, isn't it? Doctor gave me three months to live. Couldn't pay the bill. Gave me another three months. That's kind of what goes on. But there's an awful lot of people taking time off. We'll come back to that story in a moment. Uh, more than seven days a week now. Uh, sorry, seven uh, days out of a year, people are taking off sick. And a lot of them are saying uh, it's because of their mental health. Uh, but a story that has been very much dominating uh, the news events over the past couple of days as well uh, has been this charge that has been made uh, after a shooting incident involving a police officer and um, the fact that uh, yesterday we saw a lot of armed police officers putting their weapons down and effectively saying that they weren't going to carry them because they didn't have confidence in the fact that uh, their colleague had been charged with murder. Let's talk to Tony Long now, uh, who is a former Metropolitan Police marksman, about the stress and the struggles for people in the police who are licensed to carry a gun. Tony, um, very good morning to you. Thanks for talking to us. Good morning, Mike. you got a piece of the sun today. Um, where you say cops charged with murder can be left hanging for years until justice is done. There's a lot of uh, disquiet in the force about this, obviously. We saw that sort of being um, represented yesterday. Um, Tell us what is going through the mind now of the man, if you can, uh, who's been charged with murder. Well, obviously, I've been in that position. Um, I shot someone in the the summer of 2005 um, and uh, retired in 2008. Um, and didn't actually uh, finally get acquitted at the Old Bailey for murder until uh, 
July 2010. So I know exactly how he's feeling. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, well, I say I know exactly how he's feeling. We all deal with things in different ways, but it's certainly not going to be easy for him. And, and what people forget as well, it's not going to be easy for his family. Right. Police officers are human beings. I know it doesn't seem that way, uh, the way we're quite often portrayed, and certainly in, within the last couple of years. Uh, because of a few bad apples, everybody gets tainted the same. But I think this is the issue, is that um, November X-ray uh, 121's case, uh, nobody has withdrawn their firearms authorization uh, specifically because he's been charged with murder. Officers have been charged with murder before. And we know that, you know, in my case, I describe it as having been given a shit sandwich and I knew I had to take a bite of it. And he's going to have to go through the courts and, and, and hopefully he'll come out the end of free man. But a changed man, hmm. um, certainly. And the wheels of justice move very slowly, don't they? Which probably doesn't help. But it's not—it's not a personal thing. But it's just one of those terrible things that anyone who's charged with anything has to put up with. Yeah, there's a certain amount of truth to that, Mike. But um, I think one of the biggest issues is the IOPC. Most police officers would argue that it's simply not fit for purpose. Hmm. When I was investigated in uh, the summer of 2005 through to the autumn, I was investigated by mature experienced former investigators from Customs and Excise and Police and the like who worked for the predecessor to the IPCC, uh, which I think was the PCA. In fact, no, I, I correct myself, the IPCC had just been rebranded, if you like, from the PCA. Um, and at the time there was um, a, an MOU which basically said that, um, they, that they, the investigators, would come back after a period of 20 days, or 30 days I think it was, um, and give the chief constable or the commissioner in this case an indication as to whether any of their investigation up to that point had in, given any indication at all that the police officer had acted unlawfully. And if that was the case, that they, they didn't think he'd acted unlawfully from speaking to as many witnesses as they could within that 30-day period, then it was up to the chief constable um, to, uh, to make a decision about whether to reinstate that officer. Well, that MOU just fell by the wayside. And so what's happened now is a good percentage of the investigators from the IOPC have no investigative background. Many are straight out of university with very little life skills. And they simply have no comprehension about the human dynamics of, of a dangerous situation where you believe your life or someone else's life is in danger. And so consequently, their investigations are taking literally years. I mean, it's not as if, and I said this yesterday to someone else, it's not as if the IOPC are given a headless armless torso found in a in a waste bin mm. um, and told right you've got to find out who this person is you've got to investigate you've got to interview all his friends you've got to and it's not a murder inquiry the person that's pulled the trigger is standing over the body with a gun he hands the gun in he hands his body worn a camera in and said do you want a statement so if, if you're working on a situation like that how can an investigation take as long as it does mm. it's just seen that that's an unnecessary burden right and likewise if it's an important case like this I mean, the, the Crown Prosecution Service, again, don't seem to have any time limit on decision-making. Um, no. And, I mean, some people are saying that, you know, of course the police have to be investigated. Of course there has to be robust, um, you know, um, uh, inquiries after a, a gun is fired. You know, they should expect that. Um, but there's also a piece in the, uh, the Telegraph this morning where a former um, a minister, former Home Office minister, is saying that, you know, maybe the CPS should reconsider the case. And without going into the detail, obviously, of the case... Um, you know, a lot of uh, firearms officers, we're told, are feeling quite vulnerable and are said to be reflecting on their positions as to what they do uh, in the future. 
Well, that's exactly what this handing in of, of blue authorization cards is all about. Yeah. If you go on duty uh, to conduct an armed operation or to patrol the streets of, uh, of the capital, uh, and when you're paraded, um, it's made clear to you that on every occasion that you have you, you have an obligation to go and speak to your uh, commander um, and say, look, um, I had a massive row with the wife uh, before I came in at work today. Um, you know, I'm not in a good place. Um, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't be going out with a gun. Right. Uh, and and I'm, for this evening, I'm quite prepared to do anything else you, you want me to do, but I'm not prepared to carry a gun because I don't think I'm in the right frame of mind. You have an obligation to do that. Right. And that's what they've done. What they've turned around and said is, we don't believe you've got our back. Um, we don't believe that you are looking after our interests. This, this raft of um, suggestions um, that the commissioner has made to the Home Secretary, these have all been said before. And they had promises from various governments that they would you know, form a review, that they would look at all of these things. And none of it has happened. And so when the commissioner's come out with this and said, look, guys, you know, we want you to come back to work, um, and, and this is what we've done, you know, we're a lot more mature and a lot more um, worldly wise than we were in 2005. When the commissioner, John Stevens, turned up then, uh, we were like, oh, yeah, great, brilliant. The boss is going to look after our interests. Mm. And all this time later... We know that they're not looking after our interests. Um, and so if you tell us that, sorry, sir, we don't believe you. Yeah. Um, and so that's what it's all about. It's about a complete lack of faith in management. Right. And what do you think the impact will be, Tony, if, for example, the judge decides, because he's going to make a decision shortly, we believe, uh, to unveil uh, the, the officer uh, and his identity? Because at the moment um, he's not been named, he's anonymous, but there is a suggestion that the, the, the judge might agree that he can be named, which is going to be pretty bad news all round, isn't it? Well, uh, 121 is in a slightly different position to me. When this happened to me in 2014, um, I went through the, exactly the same process that he did last Thursday when mm. he was taken to Westminster Magistrates Court. Um, difference was I was properly treated like a prisoner and handcuffed and put down the cells and then transported to the Old Bailey so that I could be granted bail. And at that point, they had to make a decision about whether or not I would be allowed to keep my anonymity code, which was Echo 7. Right. My case was slightly different insofar as I was no longer serving. I was long retired. I'd actually retired in 2008. Mm. Um, so whether they will make any uh, sort of give, give one to one any slack, I don't know. But the reality is that the courts and certainly the press don't like anonymity. Um, it seems that unless you're part of a grooming gang from the north of the country um you won't go to trial um with anonymity um so i hate to say this but i suspect that they will withdraw his anonymity mm. and uh, i don't know what will happen all i do know is that there are people who are starting to come back to work now um and starting to uh, say yes i am prepared to go out if you're telling me that you know there is going to be another review um then um okay fair enough i'll uh, i'll get my gun out of the armory and i'll uh, and i'll go back to work um but I think also that is on the basis that if anything else happens, you know, if if it, if, if you don't for try at least try and fulfil some of those promises, um, then you know this is going to happen all over again. Mm. And this has been so big this time. Last time it was one day um, and, and a much smaller number of officers. I think the writing really is on the wall for the commissioner. You need to sort this out properly this time, mm. or this is just going to come back and bite you later on down the line. Sure. Tony, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Tony Long there, former Metropolitan Police marksman who himself was charged, of course, 
uh, after firing a gun uh, as well. He says that it uh, is an awful situation for everybody to be in. But at the moment, uh, the police are really under so much scrutiny and you never know uh, if the anonymity is lifted on this particular individual who's currently only known uh, by a number NX121, what effect will that have on his colleagues and uh, his friends um, and his family? This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is good to be back, I must say. I was away for like a week. It seems like a lot longer than that, I know. Uh, we've got loads of you who have been making calls. We'll try and get to all of you. But if we don't, don't worry, because uh, I'm here for the rest of the week and the rest of time, basically. We've got a lot of big surprises coming up here at Talk TV. It is the home of common sense. It's the only place uh, to hear the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Coming up in this hour, we'll continue uh, talking about what we've been talking about, uh, the illegal migrant problem. Uh, 780 million people, according to Suella Bravo, I mean, would qualify uh, to come and live here. I think it might get a bit crowded. Probably not a great idea. Donald McLeod is here. Hey. Um, MBE, no less. Uh, Donald McLeod of the Clan McLeod. He was uh, very kind and buying me, uh, took me out for dinner on Sunday night. Um, unfortunately, it was quite expensive. I'm not going to tell you how much it was. And he went, do you want to split it? I went, yeah, all right. Crikey. Anyway, uh, we, we managed to survive. It was a lovely dinner. It was great. Nice yeah. to see you. And I see that you've, by way of reparations... is the name of the place. By way of reparations, brought me this. Yes, the titan of the media. This um, is Mike Graham's. That's lovely. It's, it's from, lovely is it from Portugal? Yeah, Douro Valley, and it's... Uh, pre- Hand-picked grapes and then pressed by feet on stone presses. Ooh, so, so you may get a wee toenail. You That's know. all right. That's okay. <laughs> um, oh, I look forward to drinking that. It looks lovely. Now, you're here for a lot of reasons, but let's talk about uh, what's going on up in uh, north of the border because um, the ULES story continues to rumble on. Ooh. And you guys have got, actually, some quite important dates coming up, haven't you? Yes, well, uh, LEZ, the low economy zone. Yes. Reds and Scotland. Call it, yeah. at, uh, it's getting squeaky bum time uh, up up north and uh, this Friday we have a procedural hearing um, right. that's where the lawyers meet yeah. uh, to discuss the tactics and how much the money they're going to make yeah, yeah well they yeah, well, you get this you get that and then uh, on the 17th of October we yeah. actually go to you know the court of session it's a and who's a taking who to court of hearing who's it's William Payton Auto right. Recovery yes um, this is the guy whose who's repair shop car repair garage mm-hmm. is in just inside the zone 200 yards inside oh. the zone and he stands to lose it could lose up to about three million pounds a year wow. because it's the older vehicles yeah. that have to come in and right. get repaired and the older vehicles in glasgow for you, if you don't know this it's actually worse there than it is here in london because if you you can't actually buy permission to go in can you no uh, you, you go in if you you find out after a couple of weeks your car's not compliant yeah. and you're hit with 60 pounds if you've done it the next day then it's doubles 120 wow. if just perhaps it takes you a few weeks to find out it can rise up to about 900 right. pounds which sadly happened to one person wow. and you, the, there is no exemptions that as far as that's right. concerned so that's um, ridiculous because i mean even blackmail. whatever you might think of the ulez zone down here mm-hmm. and most people don't want it at least you have the ability to pay to go in there. Well, you've got a, a choice. Do I go in? Do I pay this charge? Right. Well, and, well, maybe you don't have that choice now uh, with you less spread mm. now, but there is a, a fee, a set right. fee. Right. Whereas up there, it's just rising. It's, you know, it really is, um, you know, highway robbery. It from, really is. From the council and the government. Right. So, yes, we're taking them to court because it's so, so many So you're taking the council people. to court? It's the council and the Scottish government. Yeah. You know, they're, they're behind because if mm. it fails, you know, it's a £24 million bill to right. Glasgow City Council. So, but equally, it destroys all the plans for Dundee, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, all their rollout plans yeah. for, 
for LEZ. Right. It really is uh, inequitous. It's discriminatory. It affects the poor, yeah. uh, those in lower And it incomes. affects small business, doesn't it? But it's clattered footfall in Glasgow. Right. You know, even the city... Uh, Chamber of Commerce, they've reported it's down 10% right. on pre-COVID. It's right. never risen, and it continues to flag and drop. Mm. 70% of uh, Scottish hospitality members operating in Glasgow saying it's, it's been a calamity. Right. Uh, you know, business is falling off at the abyss. Right. Um, it's Thousands of workers are getting affected here, and you can see it. You go into Glasgow and you just go... What's going on? Because particularly if you're, say, a shift worker or somebody maybe even works at your nightclub. Yes. You know, if you're, you know, you're, you're working so you're not maybe drinking, you can't drive in if you've got a car that's not Well, you can't drive in. Because there's going to no... be more money than you get paid, probably. And there's no public transport yeah. really worth a salt. We're trying our night. best with yeah. the, the bus groups up there to, mm. um, you know, provide night buses. But there is a public transport failing yeah. massively in Glasgow. And now the new one is that 600 taxis... Even though they got an exemption for a year, 600 black cabs look as if they will not be uh, up and running uh, compliant by next uh, next year. So they're going to be handing their right. licences back. So that and means these are half the black the, cab drivers. That's a half Glasgow's fleet. So right. there's going to be less drivers, mm. less public, uh, your private hire drivers as well, because there's so many cars getting pulled up right. every week and they're getting their licences taken off them for not being compliant. It's murder. Right. But the laugh was, and it's, well, it's not funny really because you've got a million pounds of fines that the council have estimated. Yeah. And at the weekend, the Sunday Mail did a cracking, you know, cracking piece on it that they're talking, using that million pounds for wildflower meadows oh, within sake. Glasgow and rain gardens. Rain gardens in Glasgow. Well, I mean, <laughs> As if we need rain gardens. Say, you know, well, every garden's a rain garden in Glasgow. Isn't <laughs> exactly. It? The streets are. Puddles, right. uh, pothole puddles, right. but um, th- this is what they're talking about. Rather than spending it on making a better public transport, reducing the council tax, yeah. uh, which is rocketing, um, and, and helping those in need. No, let's build mm. a well, you know, well meadow, flowering meadow that in this bonkers. city. But, you know, this is the trouble. We've got these people now who have got a kind of almost cult-like mm. kind of zealotry about changing the way we all live you know let's actually make it easy they don't for people. want to hear another view they no. just don't, the view of common right. sense well you know now that they're talking about net zero not being as as kind of shall we say user friendly as we thought and rishi sunak moving away from it they're now saying well what would be wrong with making the city quieter and more peaceful and well, that, more environmentally form friendly? any part of the legal argument no they make. of course know, not but this we, is what i'm saying they, they now cling on to anything yes that anything. maybe we should mm. just do it because it'll be better yeah well, well that's fine but it's not better if you're out of business it's not better if you're out of pocket and it's not better if you can't do what you used to do well the headline was grass grow <laughs> It <laughs> said so the people make grass grow. Yeah. Well, I say weed these councillors out. Weed yeah, these definitely. The, the government. It, it's, they're terrible. And up and down the UK, they're, right. they're behaving like this. But there's another story that surfaced again. <laughs> there was front page in the Sunday Mail where it's where the, the Liberals are asked for, uh, Willie Reddy asked for proof uh, through an FOI um, on how much the lease back was going to cost the city of Glasgow. The right. lease back, when Glasgow had to settle a 700 million, um, what do you call it, uh, equal pay. Oh, yes. This is like the thing that got and, Birmingham, right? And to do that, they had no money. They sold off their highest assets, you know, right. like the Kelvin Grove uh, art galleries. Right. Um, 
and lease them back, <laughs> City Chambers. Right. That seven hundred million is going to cost one point five billion. So they've doubled it. More than doubled it. By the time, by 2050, that is what it's going to have cost the city of Glasgow. Right. That means that money gets passed, that bill gets passed on to, guess what? The, the Glaswegians. Yes. And they will have to, that's why the uh, council tax is reckon going to rocket right. by about 10 to 15%. You're looking at um, massive bills of congestion charges. Yeah. <laughs> which we don't have. They're talking about yet. putting one in, right? 15 quid a pop. Jeez. I mean, they just do not think. Who puts these lunatics in charge? I know. I mean, why but are they allowed to do They've run away this? with it, haven't they? They've run away with their kind of own um, thoughts and their own policies, and nobody, as mm. far as I know, was asked in Glasgow if they wanted it. Well, it's not their Are money. They? You know, it's easy to spend mm. other people's money. Yeah. That's, that's the proof of that, You're, you know, and we'll just pass it on, but say it's good for the environment. It's, it's, yeah, you know, why would you not breathe. want to do it? Exactly, you're trying to kill my kids with right. asthma. Right. The way. Stop bedwetting. I mean, it's, I it's ridiculous, but this is what's happening. So right. 1.5 billion... <laughs> <laughs> and that money is going to Bermuda. Yeah. To a lovely to some yeah, uh, some, some hedge fund company. owner. Yeah. yeah exactly. Well this is the thing. And also this whole clean air nonsense that they go on about. You know, supposedly the air in London's never been cleaner, <laughs> which I which I would say makes me think, well then that way the cars that are pumping out all this um, pollution and the emissions must not be polluting the air because otherwise why would the air be better? Well, it, it, our argument has always been that and in Glasgow, which let's face it apart from the rain, there's an awful lot of wind. And there's quite and, a big motorway that goes yeah, through the middle of town. Which, which they now want to put, uh, turn into a boulevard yeah. and, <laughs> and reduce... I'm sorry for laughing. <laughs> ...make it a 20 mile an hour zone. You're joking. Which, sorry, well, what's that going bridge? to do to the atmosphere? Well, the Kingston Bridge, <laughs> yes. 20 miles an hour. Well, you can't really go faster than that anyway at the, Most at the, of the moment. Time. Yeah, but... Making it a, le- a boulevard yeah. with trees and bees and well. Where have these people come from? Bloody Dalai. I mean, really? <laughs> I mean, people want to live in cities for a reason. If you want to be surrounded by trees and grass and animals and, you Go know, like one of those field. Disney films where you have the birds on your arm going, yeah, you know. No, 20 minutes outside of Glasgow is Loch Lomond, yeah. the Trossachs. Right. You know, further up, you know, maybe an hour you you're in the Highlands. You can see the mountains. Yeah, you can see town. it. You can feel the wind yeah. shearing off it as well. But Dear there mate. is no... Our argument has always been the pollution stats are not what they claim mm. to be. And we have got a, a proof that they have been lying about these figures. Right. So hopefully that... There's a funny thing. Because that's the other thing they've all got in common. Yeah. They've fiddled the numbers. Sadiq can. they yep. fiddled the numbers. So they, they say, oh, we're not fiddling the numbers. We're looking at it a different way from you guys. Sorry, it's black and white. Yeah. But you're looking at it back to yeah, front yeah. here. Right. So that's going to hopefully form part of our argument when it goes to court. You know, mm. we're not getting the truth. Right. We never do get the truth. Right. And yet, so hope, I don't know what the outcome is going to be, fingers crossed. But could it be reversed then, do you think? It could be. It could be. And it could that would be, be huge. The, the council could be told that they've acted illegally. Yeah. They did not give William Payton enough time right. to um, get himself ready. And that's a laugh because that's mm. their, biggest, their biggest complaint, that you've had plenty notice, plenty notice, well, 600 vehicles in Glasgow, council vehicles yeah. are non-compliant. 
and it's costing the taxpayer to bring in lease vehicles. I think it's a hundred thousand a I month. Mean, it's the biggest belief. To, so they they've had all that time and they've not used it. You know wisely, and they tell us it's hypocritical. Meanwhile, I was laughing earlier because Scottish uh, schools are on strike, um, <laughs> and I think it's unison. So Again. I guess it's not the teachers, right? But the woman who's speaking up for them appears to have a tooth missing. Which, I mean, Wesley. forgive me for, you know, being obvious about it. It's not a great look, is it, if you go on TV. You got, Just the one. You look as if you're from an extra deliverance. Has you know. got one tooth or is there one missing? Well, there's one missing by the looks of it. Oh, dear. Anyway, what do, what do I know? But, there's, you know, and we keep hearing that everything in Scotland is better than it is here. It doesn't sound like it. Well, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, Humza Useless is uh, actually true to his word um, after the by-election right. in uh, Rutherglen, mm. because he says if they get beat, it's down to me, it'll be my fault. All oh, right, is and he going to resign? I, he's putting his hands up and he will take it on the trip and he will be the man responsible. Oh. What does that mean, though? Yeah, well, it does doesn't that mean, mean quit, does it? Uh, it was my fault. I ended up, yeah, and uh, oh, but I'm we'll off. just carry on, I'm or, off. Or, or, or I'm off. No, it's not, it's never going no. to happen, is it? No. I mean, honest to god, but it looks as if yeah. they're going to get humping, honestly, in, yeah. in Rutherglen, and we can only hope. Well, you think Labour are going to get it back? That looks to be the way. Um, but, you know, polls are polls. But, polls are polls, uh, you never know. But if that was to happen, then there could be a resurgence of Labour in Scotland. Um, they just need a party to yeah. hold the SNP to account. Yes. And I know that our friend, uh, Mr Salmon, would love it yes. to be uh, Alapa. He would. But, um, I'm afraid that's not going to happen. But we do have a we do have a, a, a spy within, or not even a spy, an outspoken critic, Fergus Ewing, yes. SNP. He's really turning it up right. in Scotland. Every time the council open their mouth, the government open their mouth, he's there slamming he's them on for their new policies. Yeah. So, yeah, he's a star at the Good. moment. Something to look forward to. Yep. Great. Well, listen, we're out of time, unfortunately. I should look forward to drinking the old Titan wine, though. Thank you very <laughs> much indeed. I shall think of you. Titan. Uh, as I explained to my bank manager what the problem is this month. Um, <laughs> dinner with Donald, I'm afraid. Um, coming up, though, uh, we're going to be taking some of your calls as well. Uh, we're also going to find out what is going on at the airports, because apparently uh, Gatwick's on another go slow, because people are off sick. Too many people sick in air traffic control. Go figure. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the home of Common Sense. Uh, this is from Ash in Haywood. He says this, Mike Graham and Donald McLeod, mass protests from drivers in Glasgow and London is needed by taking the number plates off and, where possible, swapping cars if insurance allows. With some friends, the cameras will be useless and the police are very busy and all on traffic duty. Register it as a protest with the police and let the courts decide. Well, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, activity, shall we say, still going on around the ULES cameras in the expanded ULES zone here in London. Uh, an awful lot of these cameras being disabled, being taken down. Uh, they started putting out vans, in fact, which were uh, with police cameras in them uh, to try and catch people out on the old uh, ULES front with mobile camera vans. But funnily enough, a lot of the people have been out parking behind them so that they can't actually film out the back. Uh, or parking in front of them, or parking on the side of them. Um, some of them even uh, have had their tyres let down. So there's mass civil disobedience on this. And, of course, when we see people uh, like Chris Packham saying, is it time now to break the law uh, to save the climate? Well, uh, maybe he would be in favour of these guys breaking the law um, to save the motorists and to save people from having to pay through the nose for something that they should have been able to do for nothing. We shall see. We'll have that argument, I'm sure. Right now, though, it's time for this. The world of woke. 
I've really missed the world of woke, but it hasn't gone away. You might think that the world of woke uh, was on the retreats, but it clearly is not. Um, and up in Scotland, where we've just seen uh, Donald McLeod talking about the uh, teachers' strike or the school strike in one way or another, um, there's a story today about Dundee. And Dundee is the home of many things. Dundee is the home of a lot of jam. Uh, Dundee is the home uh, of an awful lot of industry. Uh, it's also the home, of course, of the Beano, um, because the Beano was created uh, in the offices of Dundee's uh, what do you call it, uh, I suppose, premier publishing company. And Dennis the Menace was, of course, one of the things that they also created. But the government have nicked it, bizarrely, and they've got very upset up in Scotland. They've got one particular uh, Scottish national MP for Dundee West by the name of Chris Law, who's very upset. Look, here's a poster, and this is apparently a poster that's put out by the government in which it says, created in London, unleashed in more than one hundred countries and that is of course a reference to what you can see there is Dennis the Menace and uh, the, the new billboard campaign features computer generated images of Dennis and his faithful dog Nasher. Now of course unfortunately they have got this a bit wrong but is it really cultural appropriation which is what this guy says it is. Uh, he says uh, this uh, statement is utter garbage he says Dundee City created Dennis the Menace and Nasher through the publishers DC Thompson. He says cultural appropriation is a desperate measure to claim credibility. Well, I mean, it's an easy mistake to make. It could well be that somebody who wrote the advert, uh, who wrote the slogan created in London, was thinking that all things come from London. And whereas when something does come from Dundee, you should really give it absolute and utter credence. But I think Chris Law has gone a bit over the top. I mean, branding it cultural appropriation is garbage in itself because, of course, you can't steal something from the same country. You know, you might say the culture in Scotland is different from this culture in England. It's not that different. It's not like they're two separate nations, is it? They're all part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That's what it's called. People always say to me, what do you mean Scotland's not a nation? Well, show me a Scottish passport and I'll tell you you're a nation. You don't have a Scottish passport because there isn't one. You have a British passport because that's the country that you live in. So stop getting your knickers in a twist, tartan or otherwise, about a billboard which has been put up by the government saying Dennis the Menace is from London. I mean, parochial doesn't even cover it, is the problem. That's the world of woke. The world of woke. Now, I, now I can't say for sure, but uh, it's indeed partly possible, I would say, that Simon Calder was a fan of the Beano when he was a young man. You never know. Um, but he's, I'm delighted to say he's joined us now, travel correspondent from The Independent, guru to the stars. Uh, Mr Calder, a very good afternoon to you. Uh, good afternoon to you, Mike. And I think I can remember when the Beano cost two old pence. But wow. I realise that I am the only person left standing alive <laughs> who can do that. But yes, uh, and also Dundee, by the way, great city if anybody is wanting to go there from a tourist point of yes. view. It's yes. also, I think it's also the world's capital of heroin users as well. But I mean, I don't want to make that, a, you know, make that a downer for you. But it is a fabulous country, Scotland, full of wonderful things. And jute, apparently, as well, was, uh, was, was one of the things that they produced in Dundee. Yes. Uh, almost exclusively from, from a European perspective. And they had all these jute barons that lived there. But anyway, uh, enough about yeah. Dundee. What about Gatwick Airport? What's going on there? 
Okay, what's going on at Gatwick Airport today? As far as I know um, from having checked this, the uh, schedules in the past few minutes, it's looking pretty smooth there today, but that's because there's only 800 flights arriving and departing because yeah. it's Tuesday, normally the uh, quietest day of the week for aviation. However, on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday and on Sunday... There are more than 800 flights scheduled, and so therefore um, the Gatwick Airport has said you airlines are going to have to cancel flights to take the number down to 800 because we can't handle any more than that because 30% of air traffic controllers at Gatwick who know how to work the control tower are sick. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because if you were planning on taking a trip from Gatwick this week, is it one of those where you're not quite sure until literally the last minute whether it's going to go? No, and that's exactly what they're trying to avoid here, Mike. Mm. We saw we saw yesterday, for instance, 80 cancellations on EasyJet. Um, many of them last-minute cancellations when the pilots ran out of hours. Um, we've we've seen uh, additional cancellations on voiling on British Airways, yeah. and that's so. So these things have become over the past few days so common because there's apparently an outbreak of covid in the control tower um that the gatwick last night said okay that's enough we are going to cap the number of flights so get on with it airlines we're, we're kind of trying to get ahead of this problem we're going to upset a number of people but it's better that we have planned cancellations and maybe shifting some people from a particular Gatwick Amsterdam flight to another one earlier or later mm. that's going to be an awful lot better than Mike Graham turning up and suddenly oh sorry Mike your flight's cancelled um bad luck yes yes that's never a good thing but I mean I think we had this conversation when they had the sort of disaster strike didn't they um, when they didn't have enough workers a while back when they had too many people people off sick and it seems extraordinary that such a very very kind of what you might call um, delicately balanced thing like air traffic control doesn't have a sort of alternative place for people to operate from so that if you've got too many people off sick you couldn't replace them somewhere else. Well, uh, that would be nice. And it, a lot of people are just saying, well, first of all, 30%, how can you possibly have that money off sick? But also, why haven't you got a, a, a man or woman who's trained sitting in the next room, drinking a cup of coffee, yeah. looking out the window and ready to step in if somebody sneezes? Right. Well, um, and, and there's very good reasons for that. And basically, there is a, a lack of air traffic controllers who know how to work Gatwick. It is the world's busiest runway, so you've mm. got to be pretty jolly good in order to uh, uh, be able to work there. You need loads of experience and training. And what they've not been able to provide during the COVID pandemic is experience and tracing training. So it's, you've got shortages right across um, Europe, but it's actually more acute at Gatwick than anywhere else. Huh. Because if you say, OK, we're one controller down, we're going to slow the flow rate down by 20%, that is immediately going to have a massive impact on passengers flying in and out of Gatwick. And that's what we've seen time mm. and again. And even though the uh, Nats, the air, air navigation provider, and Gatwick Airport keep saying, we think things are going to get better. Well, they haven't done. And now we know they're going to get worse um, until Sunday, at which point they hope things will get better by a combination of people getting better. And let's hope they all make a speedy recovery and the decline in aviation from Gatwick that you get anyway during the autumn. You know, September ends and a number of uh, flights stop operating. Mm. 
Yes, it's not a happy scene, but I suppose less unhappy, if you like, than the train business, which seems to be still um, accruing strike dates. I think there's one coming up on the yeah. 30th of September. They're striking yeah. to try and stop Tories getting to their conference. I say let them go to the conference. They can do less damage there than they can in Whitehall, to be honest. So just let them go. Um, but I'm reading this morning, rail passengers hit with three years worth of delays in just 12 months due to 40 yep. trains, 760,000 journeys delayed. Unbelievable. Well, yes, and um, it's one of these things where you're wondering where responsibility lies mm. and who is actually taking the wrap over the knuckles of this. Now, all our train services, pretty much, with a few exceptions, like Lumo, uh, like Hull Trains and like Grand Central, uh, they are all stipulated by the government. Um, they say, please run these these trains, and they actually, yeah, we'll say, we want you to operate those particular trains at these times, and we'll give you a little bit of money on top. The idea that uh, you've got um, robber barons making a fortune, well, certainly the rolling stock companies do make a fair bit, but um, clearly there does not seem to be a significant um, incentive for them to get things much more right than they they do at the moment. And you know, it's bad enough with signal failure, with points failure, with strikes, as you say, as left on strike on Saturday and also the following Wednesday, the last day of the conference um, in uh, Manchester. That's right. going to affect people on Wednesday, the 6th, uh, 4th of October. And don't forget the RMT tube strike in London, also on the 4th of oh. October. And then the 6th of I'd October. I'd forgotten about that one. Uh, just just to keep you guessing. So, um, yeah, it's tough enough being a traveller without the flipping trains deciding that they are going to uh, uh, not cooperate. So, yeah, um, very, very galling. And people need to be able to trust the railway, to believe yeah. that it is resilient. And they can't at the moment. So they're thinking, right, oh, I won't make that journey. And then or you I'll think, go yeah. by a car. And you think that people are not using the trains, but they still are in massive numbers, particularly the weekends. I know this only because my son went back up north uh, at the weekend <laughs> on the famous Avanti West Coast Line. Um, couldn't get a seat um, until they passed through somewhere like Stockport. Yes. Literally standing room only. It's ridiculous. Well, um, uh, the, 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 certainly we've got this weird thing where the government is cutting HS2, yeah. um, probably going to, to kick the leg to Manchester into the long grass yeah. after they've completely amputated the leg to Leeds. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, just, just a... Yes, they've managed mess. to turn um, a Y shape into an I shape, haven't they? <laughs> I think you've summed it up. Why I? Yes. But they're not even going yes. to Newcastle. I mean, I just don't know what's going on. But yet they've spent 80-odd billion or something, haven't they? Uh, well, they've probably spent about 40 billion so far. Great. Total bill would be around about 76 billion, which you and I know actually in real life is going to be somewhere north of 100 billion yeah. but it's one of those things where once you started you just got to finish the whole jolly thing otherwise you are getting um 80 of the costs for only 20 yeah. of the benefit well, i was saying this earlier i assume that they probably bought a load of land going all the way up to manchester from birmingham so what are they gonna do with that now 
Well, there's, there's various. I mean, there's an awful lot of very upset people in um, in Yorkshire where they were told, um, you know, we're going to be sending uh, uh, HS2 through here, so we're going to demolish your nice new house. Yeah. And now they're saying, actually, we're probably not going to because we dropped that idea. Um, just all this uncertainty. You know, national Amazing. projects are supposed to be for the national good. Yes, there's a lot of local pain, and that is regrettable. But it's even worse when you keep chopping and changing. And as anybody who's ever had any work done on their home knows, the very last thing you ever do is change your mind halfway through because one thing you know is it's going to take twice as long and the cost will double probably yeah. as well i know unbelievable it seems straightforward doesn't it simon i mean if only we were able to pull the levers of power and fix everything because we well, could I- I know we well, could. I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the eventual, and surely it can't be too long, uh, takeover of the British government by the Independent Republic yeah. of Mike Graham. And then, exactly as you say, everything will suddenly work perfectly. It's very true. You're too kind. Thank you very much indeed. Simon Cole, the travel correspondent from the Independent Guru uh, to the stars, of course. Of course, the trains are knackered. Um, 760,000 journeys have been delayed since 2020. I think I was on about 700 of them. Anyway, uh, this is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 